Welcome to the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference podcast, presented by ESPN and 42 Analytics. This is Jessica Gelman, who along with Daryl Morey, co-founded and chair the conference with a fantastic group of MIT Sloan students each year. We are thrilled to announce the launch of this podcast network to add more avenues to grow awareness and innovation around analytics and sports. We are excited to make the panel discussions from our 2019 conference, which covers a wide range of sports and analytics topics available via podcast for the very first time. Thanks for listening and enjoy. Good afternoon and welcome to the 2019 Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. My name is Jill Payne and I'm a Sloan Fellow MBA student at the MIT School of Management. And it's my pleasure today to bring to you our panel, No Lead is Safe, Innovation in Sports. Our panelists today are Amy Brooks, who's Chief Innovation Officer and President of Team Marketing and Business Operations for the NBA. Steve Pagliuca, who's Managing Partner and Co-Owner of the Boston Celtics. Jason Robbins, who's CEO and Founder of DraftKings. Saj Cherian, who's Partner of Kinetic, which owns Fanatics. And our panel today is going to be moderated by Eric Shemi, who's a sports business reporter for CNBC. If you'd like to submit questions for one of the panelists, please do so through Twitter using the hashtag sportsinnovators. The panel will last for about 45 minutes and we'll save 10 minutes for Q&A at the end. And with that, I'll turn it over to Eric. Thank you, Jill, appreciate it. You guys can hear me, right? Sounds good. You know, there's a lot of seats here in the front, so if you guys are way in the back, you guys can get closer. We're not gonna spit or bite. And uh, we know that we are the last thing that is in the way between getting drinks and food and all the good stuff, so hopefully we'll make it entertaining and worth your time. So this is a real all-star panel that I'm pleased to be moderating with. But we'll try to keep it interactive and not, and not cookie-cutter and boring, because we know how some of these conference panels can go, especially 5 o'clock on a Friday. Um, I'm going to start right with Amy, because Chief Innovation Officer, you're the only person with innovation in your title. None of these guys have that in their title. What does that mean? Because most companies don't have that job. Is this one of these made up jobs that they had to Maybe. give you a promotion? So they said, we'll make her a CIO, but we'll make the I innovation. Um, a little of everything in that. So I, I am the chief innovation officer. Other companies actually do have this title, I have learned. But not a lot. It's not <laughs> like CEO. There are, there are quite a few. Um, it's a combination of an innovation and a strategy role, I would say. Uh, that part of my job, I'm responsible for helping the Everyone heard from Adam earlier. We have a lot of different strategic growth initiatives and innovation going on, and I'm responsible for working with our leadership to figure out what we should do and how we should prioritize that in a, in a world where there's a lot that's new and different and taking up our time. Steve. I'm so far from you. I, I know like. this is far. I feel like I should like turn my seat this way. We can circle around. So Steve, it's fine. co-owner of the Celtics, you've got the GE jersey patch that everyone is familiar with. I assume everyone who watches an NBA game have noticed the jersey patches over the last couple of years. That's something that's been a partnership between teams like you, the league office with Amy. Where do those innovations come from? Is that the team saying to the league, hey, we want permission to make more money? So you got to give us some advertising space that the league has to change those rules, or is it the league saying to teams, you guys have to start doing this? The actual answer is it's a combination of the two. And I would say, you know, there are some companies maybe that have chief innovation officer that that doesn't mean anything, but certainly in the NBA it's meant something. Uh, and I think Amy's done a fantastic job. I've been there for 16 years now watching this. And the NBA has been 
to, to me, the best league in terms of getting out ahead of the trends. So the patch is a, is a perfect example where uh, it just didn't happen overnight. We watched what other teams were doing with other leagues in Europe. You know, if you go to Europe, the soccer teams have, have huge emblems uh, on them. When that you came don't in, even see the team logo. You know, I, I you know, just know it's the yeah. Emirates team. I don't know what the actual exactly. team is. Yeah. So, so we decided we didn't want that. We still wanted to maintain the integrity of the teams. So we worked with the league and, 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 and ownerships across the league, worked and said, you know, let's design a patch that won't dominate the jersey, but it'll be significant for advertisers. And it was controversial uh, when it started, even, even with the patches being out there on other teams. But they studied it, uh, you know, put in a pilot program, and so far, it's worked very, very well. You know, we're very proud to have that patch on our jersey. I think GE's done a fantastic job, and we've made it more than a patch. It's, it's a, it's talking about innovation. Uh, the, the, the biggest innovations I've seen is, is now you're getting close to the sponsors. You're integrating them into your, into your game. We're using GE stat packages. We're using GE, GE healthcare equipment. Uh, we have, we, we have a, a situation where we, we do a STEM van that goes into schools with GE. So, so it's all integrated. It's not only a patch, it's a whole program with the sponsors so they can take full advantage of the Celtics brand and we can take full advantage of their brand. It's worked out very, very well. How come you guys ban uh, gambling from the patches? Why is Jason getting left out if he wants to get himself a patch? Why? He's an innovator. It's legal now. Why can't he get a patch? He is. I, I, we just didn't want our players right now at this stage promoting go bet right here. And that, that's why, because it's not legal in every state. There's lots of complications. But to Steve's point, a lot of the collaboration came between team and league and there was debate, should the league sell this on behalf of the teams or should the team sell it? And what he just told you, what the Celtics are doing all around, it's not just about the patch, it's about an entire platform for these partners. But Jason, no, wanted, sorry, Jason Jason. Wanted to get in there. I think two or three years ago, we had our logo on the New York Liberty. Um, I know that was probably a little bit easier to get through the league than, than uh, the uh, NBA, but we had our logo on the New York Liberty. We were just doing fantasy at the time, but it was actually a full logo on the front. Where does innovation come from more? Because I'll go to you, Saj, from the Fanatics point of view. I know Fanatics is, is owned by the parent company Kinetic, but I'll just use the Fanatics sure. word because most people know that. I mean, you guys are retail, merchandise, it's buying jerseys. It, it doesn't seem like that should be so innovative because people have been buying clothes and jerseys for a long time. So, so what makes you guys stand out? Well, especially from, and maybe they'll judge because these are, in a way, your partners and they'll they can agree or disagree with if you're lying or not. Yeah, no, yeah, I mean, look, the one thing that I know that they'll do is hold me accountable for it because, uh, you know, uh, Fanatics were a partner to the leagues and, and to, to, to many of the teams. I'll just uh, say real quickly, anyone, if you buy a jersey, you get your favorite player, one of those jerseys, those replicas, it's coming from his company in almost any circumstance, no matter what sport, what league we're talking about. Well, we're hoping that's the case. And yeah. that's, that's more true uh, today than it was five years ago. And I think, you know, part of that is because we've actually... Uh, adopted what we call V-commerce, uh, vertical commerce. V-commerce, that's v new, right? Uh, vertical commerce, and you know, for you know, from our perspective, um, you really have to uh, kind of own uh, own uh, your differentiation. Uh, you know, you look, you give a lot of credit to Amazon and, and Alibaba. They've gone out, kind of the first generation of e-commerce with uh, marketplaces, and you know, the challenge, you know, for for someone who's offering the same thing that Amazon or Alibaba offer is that it, you're going to get killed, right? Because they have such massive scale and they're they're great at um, uh, selling other people's stuff. So we have to actually differentiate ourselves by actually um, uh, having product that you can't get anywhere else. And so we've partnered with you know, the leagues and teams, they're the IP owners, but ultimately we're manufacturing um, you know, the, the products. And so uh, with our vertical engine, we've actually been able to adapt 
what has been a sleepy industry in, in licensed sports you know, for the on-demand economy, right? So in food, in transportation, in lodging, you know, customers want things uh, you know, in real time. And so what we've been able to do is, because we manufacture uh, our products on demand, um, you know, we can take advantage of that trade. So when Kyrie Irving goes to the Celtics, um, we're in a position because we have the blanks and we can actually finish those jerseys. So those, uh, those jerseys can be actually man, you know, made in, in, in the hands of fans uh, in, in, almost in real time. So the last couple of weeks we saw Commissioner Silva roll out the, the digital jersey where the names and the numbers can change on the back. At some point, could we change the logos on the front? So let's say I like Kevin Durant. He's on the Warriors now, but I want to keep it Durant and 30, or I forget his number, Steph's 30, but it's Durant's number on the back. He changes teams, but maybe I want my logo in the front to change. At what point, it's like you said, you guys can print blanks and then change them to whoever the team is, the logo, you can, you can print off these blanks quickly. But if we can change the backs, why can't we change the fronts? And in which case, can I buy one jersey for the rest of my life and I'm just effectively wearing a digital screen and then would you guys put them out of business? Because it's like, oh, well, you know, we need to keep buying jerseys. We're done. You know, it's, it's, it's funny. So for, for those of you who uh, were at the Tech Summit or you, you watched, uh, you know, um, you know so maybe Adam Silver's uh, uh, Instagram or Twitter feed, uh, he actually talked about, you know, putting, uh, putting us out of business, um, you know, with these, you know, wearable jerseys. You guys pay a lot of jerseys. money. You guys pay a lot of yeah. money not to be put out of but, business. But, 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 but uh, and I, you know, I, I think Adam said it, you know, you know, partly in jest because, you know, uh, he, he's a big believer in, in fanatics. But I think what that, that innovation that you're, you're seeing, actually a couple years ago, my partner Michael Rubin at the Tech Summit on wearable devices was actually talking about the technology that we were looking at that actually uh, changes uh, the jerseys. And so our thought is, um, that actually helps us down the road. All it means is that we're innovating in the business model because basically what you happens is you actually would buy that digital jersey and that's gonna cost more than you know, the, the $158 or something like that you would spend today, but you buy it once and then you would buy maybe a subscription, right? And so, so the I have model to subscribe changes. to my own So you clothes? subscribe to it, yeah. So you would subscribe to it and then you can get a certain package where you know, get the home and the away jersey, maybe an alternative, maybe the Christmas jersey, um, St. Patrick's Day jersey. So like, you know, I think we're gonna potentially move into a model where um, when we get to wearable jerseys um, that are uh, sort of digital wearable jerseys, you're, you're looking at subscription model evolution and innovation in that way. Um, so, so I think I think that's a new business opportunity for us. We're still working at hard at making the technology real, um, but I think it's gonna you're gonna see it sooner than you think. Where does more innovation come from? Is it a league? Is it a team? Or is it the the private outside companies? Because I could see companies like you guys so many ways to make money, but I assume there's a lot of things you guys want to do that teams and leagues say, eh, we're not comfortable with that. We're not like. Is it true that they're the ones holding you guys back? No, Easy. <laughs> no, I don't think. I, don't, I think it's um, it's it's a collaborative effort, right? Because we're always challenging. We're always coming up with ideas. We're always uh, you know challenging the leagues, and sometimes we push them you know to the edge of their comfort zone. But look, but we, usually we, we they're get, not pushing you to the edge of your comfort zone, right? It's usually a one way. I, I don't. Know I don't about, know about that. Disagree. Jump I don't in. know yeah. about that. I think you know key to our innovation is our network, meaning teams, 
I think a secret sauce of the NBA is the collaboration amongst teams innovating in the league. And same for our partners, whether it's Fanatic, whether it's Nike, whether it, any, we look to them a lot of times to be an extension of us for innovation. And certainly when it comes to merchandise, we're, we think there's a lot more opportunity here. Adam talk about transactional friction today in ticketing with our ticketing partners and merchandise, like there's an opportunity to really deliver more to, to our fans. And I think we always are striving whether it's DraftKings, Fanatics, et cetera, to do that. But I think it's great. That's why it's perfect to have Amy, because uh, you not only have to have ideas bubble from within the NBA, but she's got to scour the universe of what's happening globally, what's happening in the WNBA, what's happening with eSports. So it is a huge area right now. And the great thing about the NBA is they've actually embraced it and been, been uh, you know, at the forefront of all the most recent developments. So you watch gaming. We have, we have several teams have their own e-teams right now. That's because we studied that. Many of the owners knew about gaming, and we put together a league, and, and, and that's starting to go in the right direction. WNBA, uh, the, the, the D-League. The D-League uh, now, I think we announced a major sponsorship deal that's going across all of, all of our properties. So that innovation really comes because someone's focused on it, they're receptive to it, and taking all the good ideas that come from Fanatics or DraftKings or any of the vendors out there. Here's also what I would say to that. Um, so the league is going to drive most of this innovation through its partners, Fanatics, uh, us hopefully, and whoever makes the, I think it's called Shot Tracker, you know, all the different uh, partners. They're not going to build all those things themselves. For those partners, those partners are focused on our businesses. So of course we're going to be the ones pushing. Of course we're going to want to do more. They have to consider what it means in the context of their broader business. And sometimes there may be a situation where it is something that will help us grow revenue or help us reach more customers, maybe even help some of their objectives. But there are other things that matter less to us. So of course we're going to be the ones pushing more. And I'd add specifically in the world of technology, we don't consider ourselves a technology company. And Technology is what we want to be very good at, and so we definitely rely on our partners to, to help us there. And I, look, I think it's not just, it's not just the, the leagues, but the teams themselves, right, are, um, are, have their own ecosystems, you know, that they're, where they're pushing uh, the, you know, the innovation. And so I think there, there's innovation that's happening at the league level, but there's also you know, a, a great deal of innovation happening at the team level. What does that mean, innovation at the team level? Is that on court trying to win innovation, or is this business, technology, community, sponsorship, that kind of innovation. What, what, I, think, I, think, I, think, I think it's both. Um, you know, for example, last, uh, in the last set of playoffs last year, we experimented with having uh, augmented reality on phones where you would have a 3D image of the court and you could watch, you were watching the game and then it would pop up, you know, th this, the shot that just was taken had a 33% chance of going in, you know, right as the guy is shooting it. And then could you gamble on that in the future? Well, like before no it goes into that one second, if well, it's quick enough? Well, you have issues of 5G and latency. We have to sort, there's a lot of technological issues you have to sort out on this gambling thing. So you can't really have someone in the stadium seeing something before, before anybody else sees it happen and, and betting when they know it's going to happen. Um, or you can't get the bet in late after it's happened. So there's going to be have to, a lot of technology you know, just studied and discussed so it's fair, it's, it's transparent, and, and, there, and there's no uh, game, quote, gaming of the system. But again, we're experimenting with things like that. There's a school of thought. There's some NBA owners, I think, that would say they want people in the game to focus on the game. I think I come down to the side of, of another group that says today's generation is different. You know, when we bought the team, there was barely, you know, there wasn't usage of Apple phones and, and, and digitization of everything. What year did you guys buy the team? Uh, 2003. Right. And the iPhone was 07. Yeah. So well, not even close. Yeah, we didn't even have the, the, the whole thing hadn't happened yet. So today's, today's fan that comes in, 
you know, if you look at, the, I, I'm at the games, I'm the same as the fans. They're looking at their phone when there's a break, they're watching the action, but they want a bigger experience. And so we've got to deliver that bigger experience. And, and they want to also project out from the stadium that they're at the stadium with their friends and what happened at the stadium. So we've got to get better systems, better stadium systems, 5G coming in, and, you know, the sky's the limit. And it's all about fan engagement at the end of the day and taking advantage of the digital and making it be part of your program and not against that program. How do you guys get people to go either to the game or to watch on TV because there's different winners and losers there. Like, you often see guys wearing jerseys at games, but if you're at home, you're more likely to be able to get on your phone and bet stuff. You as a, t as a team person, you as a league person, is, I mean, there's multiple stakeholders here. Some companies and partners don't want anyone going to the games because it's much better if they're sitting at home on their TV. And then, of course, other people, their business relies on people going to the games. How do you guys balance that? For, for the NBA, 1% of our fans will ever attend a game. 1%? 1%. That's it. They just don't live near the arena. So we, it is two separate strategies to reach both. But first and foremost is filling our buildings. And that but is... That's only 1%, so should they that, matter but that But that's much? where the core product emanates from. So that's where you see the energy of the game, the full buildings, the sponsors, et cetera. And so when someone in China is watching that game, they're excited. They want to be there. So, it, but it is two very different strategies, and we're very focused on evolving the fan experience in arena. So it's better because there is an expectation that it will be better than watching at home, while we're trying to improve the telecast and make it more interactive and make it more personalized and, and address some of the, the 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 issues with people actually consuming our games easily. Yeah, we're fortunate in the NBA that you fill up a stadium. You know, eighteen, nineteen thousand people. So it's a tougher to fill up a football stadium, uh, uh, you know, if, if things aren't going well. Um, so the NBA has been in big demand. And, you know, many of the owners point out that even the best teams are going to lose 15, 20 games a year. But you want every fan coming in to have a great experience, whether you win or lose. So it's, it's now become more about winning and losing. It's it, what is your experience at the stadium? You know, the NBA is very fortunate that, that our seats, even the seats that are halfway up, up the aisles, they're closer than most seats at a football or a soccer game because the stadiums are just smaller and they're, and, and they're meant for basketball and the courtside seats are unbelievable. So I agree with Amy. The more excitement that we have in the stadium, uh, both our fans are happier and we're not gonna win every game uh, and we want them to have a really great experience. What about the idea, not necessarily at your stadium or in the NBA, but you hear about in some stadiums they block the internet so it's hard for people to get on their phones and let's say check out the DraftKings app or maybe make a quick Fanatics purchase if they you know, get excited about the game. Those sort of rules that hold innovation back because, oh, well, we're preventing people from doing the things that they want to yeah. do. What do you guys think? I think that's, that's, that's short-sighted. And, I, you know, I, I remember, you know, early days, you know, people talk about, oh, let's not make the investments in Wi-Fi because we want the fans, when they're in the venue, uh, to actually focus on the game. Uh, but I think that's short-sighted because at the end of the day, the fan is going to dictate how they want to consume, right? And they want to, they you know, in many cases, they are trying to get access to info, um, you know, on, on stats or whatever as they're watching the game, or they're trying to share that experience, you know, with their friends who are not, you know, at the game. So to, to basically tell the fan that, no, you can't interact, um, you know, or experience the game the way you want to, I think uh, is, is short-sighted. And so I'm hearing less and less uh, you know, uh, owners saying that we're not going to make those investments. In fact, what they're saying is, hey, how do we get 5G, you know, in, in, into the venue, you know, as soon as we can um, so that we're ready for, for, for that adoption? Because that gets you, uh, you know, 5G, that gives you, I think, you know, you know, you know 20x, you know, the, you know, the, the bandwidth. And so, so you can have a much more immersive uh, experience and then play around with things like AR and VR 
actually in the venue. Yeah, the trend now is definitely the opposite. It's more owner. Every time they build a new building now, a core consideration is the internet capabilities. I think sometimes it's hard in the old stadiums because they're not built for it. And so it's actually a massive project uh, to upgrade. Um, like renovating an old house, basically. Yeah, but I think every time you see a new arena or stadium being built, one of the things they're making sure now is that there, there's good Wi-Fi. You know, we, we have a saying at Bain Capital, we invest in the business, we want it to be on the right side of history. And the right side of history on this issue, clearly to me, is more connectivity, more user-friendliness, more ease of use of any devices you have in the stadium. And, and, and that's going to be the winning strategy. So we have to upgrade these stadiums. We have to integrate it with things that fans can do interactively, whether it be ordering food, sending uh, pictures of the game, uh, anything they can do in, in, quote, the downtime, because these fans really want to be entertained 100% of the time. And, and, and to add to that, I think you're just going to see the phone become additive to your experience and enhance your experience. It's not about looking down and checking your email. It's about betting. Most of, you know, Jason knows this well, but as we see betting evolve, you know, when people bet in the UK on NBA games, which is legal, about 70% of the bets are in play bets. So I think you can expect to see people betting on the game. You can expect to people, see people sharing their experiences with others and also interacting with the video boards. We think there's a lot more potential of the video boards in our arenas, the, the biggest screens ever. Um, we had one team this year do trivia for all the fans. That's right on your phone. Everyone's playing against each other. You see the leaderboard real time. You'll see more and more of that. And that'll just help, help the building feel like a community. That's a good one. It's like the HQ trivia app, but you just it's, do it in the great. game and compete against them. Yeah. And, and look, we, we also want, you know, for example, the fans, if they, if, you know, if they want to order uh, merchandise and then, um, you know, have it delivered to their seat or... That you know, quickly? Yeah, no, in, in some of the pretty, venues, yeah. you have jerseys just in the team was, store. Was, in, many, in many cases, we run the venues, um, you know, you know um, the merchandise in those venues. Um, and so we can actually, I mean, the, again, the, the consumer is driving this, right? The consumer says, hey, I want to um, order, order a jersey and pick it up when I'm walking into the stadium so I can actually wear it, um, what, you know, as I'm arriving. I want to order it when I'm in, in my seat, um, you know, to my seat. In fact, I don't want to carry it home. I just want to order it in the venue but then have it delivered to my house. So, however, we want to give the fan options, right, to get that... Um, that extra sale, but also make sure that they're, they're, they have a great experience and you need great connectivity in the venue to make that happen. Steve, your experience at Bain Capital investing in companies, looking at companies in a traditional business, traditional corporate world, when you see what's happening on the sports and sports tech innovation side, is it better or worse than sort of rest of regular corporate America in terms of the speed, the the intellectual capabilities of the people involved and the willingness to take risks? Uh, you know, I think it's as good or, or better. Uh, there have been several, you know, Sport Radar is a company that's been very successful um, delivering uh, state-of-the-art stats. That's going to become, you know, a, a very large and successful company, uh, especially if the gambling boom comes in. You know, DraftKings really wasn't a gambling company. I, I never thought it was a gambling company. Um, well, they went out of their way to say they weren't a gambling company until it was convenient. <laughs> and then, oh, actually, we're ready to gamble. It never made sense if it was a gambling company since the better players could win. So, so in gambling, normally, you know, there's a normalization. But, but uh, really good, good players at, at DraftKings won, so it didn't make sense to me. But, but now they, they could take advantage when it becomes legal throughout, throughout the country. So um, sports actually has been a leader, I think, in innovation, and especially 
now with the revenues doubling and tri tripling because of, of television, uh, foreign rights, and really the shrinking of the world. The world is, is now, when I, when I, when we went, for example, we went and played in, in Madrid, Spain, uh, I saw at least 3,000 Celtics jerseys in Madrid, Spain, in the stadium. Are they Fanatics like, jerseys or are they some Euro knockoffs? Well, probably Fanatics, but probably Fanatics could get them, fanatics. Could get them over to Europe. Yeah. Um, and you would have thought we had a home game there. And that means the world has shrunk. And, and so the NBA is totally global. They're in India. We have programs in Africa. Uh, Mark Tatum does a great job getting everywhere. So you're gonna, we're, only in the, we're only in the early stages of this kind of globalization of the game. And then technology is going to play a huge role with huge scale globally. Would there ever be the need for public financing? When we think about team ownerships are so expensive now that individuals can't afford teams to buy on their own. And the way that we see stocks get IPOs, would there ever, maybe this is an Amy question or a Steve question, you know, some equity that the public could get involved, almost like a financial innovation. Like the, the NBA is so expensive that unless you're the former CEO of Microsoft, you really can't afford to buy a team on your own, so maybe we should make it like the stock market and you could buy pieces of teams and you could help raise those valuations. Because I don't know if we're gonna get the same 2X, 3X, 4X, 5X jumps that we got in the last 10 years. I mean, I don't think we're gonna see teams worth $10 billion because no one can afford $10 billion teams. Packers are that way already. Right, exactly. Well, we see more uh, teams set up like the Packers. Well, I, I would say that, first of all, for better or for worse, there's no shortage of people that want to buy teams that have the capital to buy teams at very high valuations. Um, but now they got to all group up. You got to get 25 of them. No, there's plenty, plenty of ones that don't have to group up. Yeah. Uh, the, the world has had an explosion of, uh, of uh, wealth creation, mainly through the internet. The internet has been like the railroads in the early days of America. Um, and so you see globally now, because it's a global game, you can't only count Americans. There, there's foreign, foreign ownership of teams, both soccer teams in the UK, for example, going for big prices and NBA teams. So I, I think we're a long ways off. And I think so, somewhat it may be pr problematic in some cases to have small investors invest in teams with the various ups and downs of the team. So I think there's, there's plenty of people that can pay money for teams or, or a group of two or three people for the foreseeable future, maybe way out um, if, if revenues keep going up and valuations go up into the, into the, which would be great, the $10 billion range, you'd have to think about things like that. But for now, uh, every time there's a team sold, at least the ones I've seen, and in Europe, uh, very competitive soccer teams in, in, uh, in the USA, basketball teams, football teams, they go for very high prices. Uh, and the second thing is, most of the owners I know to date, they didn't invest in these teams for financial reasons. We bought the Celtics, you know, it was, it was losing money, we wanted to win a championship, so we put together a group of folks that, uh, under leadership of Wick Grosbeck, that wanted to win a championship. And when we talked to people to get involved, we didn't say, you know, we're gonna get you a 17% IRR, we said, you know, we wanna get a 17th banner, we're gonna to try to structure this so you don't have to put more money in. But by the way, if we have to ask you, you should be prepared because it, back then it looked like it, it could be a long turnaround. Um, so the motivation of most of the folks that buy the sports team is a community asset. They wanna keep them a long time. They don't turn over very much. And we've been all fortunate, you know, that people that love the game got together and the game, the game has created the value. You know, if I, I'd be lying to you if I told you I invested in the team like I invested in Bain Capital because I could have done 10 other buyouts that had a, on paper had a higher rate of return we just became very fortunate that we had great leadership in the NBA, the game's a great game, and this globalization and digitization, I think, has lifted all the values of all, all, the, all the kind of iconic sports franchises. And I think the teams are becoming better businesses, right? So I think, you know, if you rewound, uh, you know, the tape 10, 10 years ago, um, you had a lot more teams that were actually losing money, the capital calls were, were significant, um, you know, but given kind of where media has gone and given 
uh, a lot of the um, businesses um, that teams are building in and around um, their, their venues and their platforms, um, I think uh, sports ownership is actually a, a pretty good business. And it's been great for the, you know, the, the, the deal that was signed with the players, which is a 50-50 partnership, has been a fantastic concept. So as the league revenues go up, the players' revenues go up. So the players are, are very happy people right now. I think salaries have, what, tripled in the time we've, we've owned the team. And so if you look at the NBA players versus other sports league players, you know, they're doing very, very well. And we love it as owners to be in partnership with the players. So if we benefit, they benefit. And it's basically 50-50. So it's been, a, it's been a very good structure so far for us that, uh, that Adam and, and the competition and, and the committees came up with and the players came up with. And uh, it, it's been fantastic. Amy, do you feel the pressure to keep those revenues growing and growing and growing by helping teams do better with their business operations, do better in their marketing, do better in their local areas as long as, you know, in addition to the national what, deals? What's been, you know, I've been at the league a while now, and what has changed so much is the perspective of ownership and our new owners coming in. It's no longer us having to push the teams. The teams are out there themselves. We, this new breed of owner you know, Steve and Wick is just an example. They're pushing us. Look what Steve Ballmer is doing with Court Vision, right? With Second Spectrum. Like, he's out there in front. We're partnering with him. And, and we're, it, it's not just on the technology front or the business front, it's certainly the real estate front. You know, Pete, Peter Guber, I was with this week, one of the owners of the Warriors, and he's saying how owning a sports team is the most complex business he's ever been in. And it's true, it is, it's a concessions business, it's a ticketing business, it's a real estate business, merchandise business. So we have teams out there in front of us, so that, that's what's fun. So it's not, it's not pressure, the pressure is really only to embrace and try to grab hold of the different directions. Yeah, it, it really has changed, uh, I, I agree with that 100%. And the league has done a great job bringing in great people, uh, like Amy, who actually worked at, at Bain, my, my favorite company. Um, and so we're demanding of them they have to hire more and more people because now the teams are doing the same themselves, but they're reaching out to the league saying, how can I do this better? What are the other teams doing? You know, we're in a partnership with the rest of the teams. So if, if we find one team doing something great, we should do the same thing. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll give you an example. When I, I've, I've been in Teambo 10 years, and you know, at first we have small marketing department at our teams. Their main job <laughs> is to decide what the campaign is for that year, and do they want a billboard or do they want a TV ad? No analytics department at all. Tickets were priced the same for every game, because why shouldn't you? Look at today. I mean, we have big marketing content groups. We have, I mean, look at these rooms here. A lot of these are people who work at teams. So that has made our team business so much more sophisticated. And all of those people spend all their time thinking, how can we do things new and differently to grow? And especially in the NBA, where you, you, you look in social media, we can talk about our social media numbers. Uh, something I always talk about is, 65% um, of our team's social media followers are outside the U.S. and Canada. And no team has less than half. So every single team... Well, every team has majority foreign yes. followers. So that is our opportunity. They're not all coming to a game in Boston, but how can the Boston Celtics reach their fans globally? That's how, do you, how do you personalize? Because in all of your businesses, there's personalization, whether it's the merchandise... <laughs> The, the gaming that they want to play, the team, the people who are watching are coming, and then, of course, the league fans. So is that the most important trend right now, is personalization, data tracking, matching a customer to a ticket buyer, to a viewer? Is it all of that that yes. you guys are all looking at? <laughs> yes, yes to all above? 
um, data science and using data to better personalize and curate experiences is absolutely the future of almost any industry connected to technology that's consumer-based. Is, yeah. that, is that why, in your case, when I see the NBA in-play app, when I see a lot of these free game apps, is a lot of that to generate a database of people that are interested in games so that when gambling becomes legal in those states that they live in, hey, DraftKings, we're, we're on a database, you know, you, your name was on our database. Is that part of... Um, I mean, building there? a database is a little bit different than what I was talking about, although certainly building a customer database is very important. Um, I think that it's about having the capabilities to use the data that you get to then personalize. Anyone can collect data. Um, in fact, most people, most companies don't use most of their data. They just collect it and it's... Yeah, or it's not organized in a way that can be accessible. It used to be also the reason most companies didn't use their data is it was manual when it was used. Even if it was manual through segmentations and other things, it was people doing it. It wasn't machines doing it. Now with machines and self-learning machines that can actually, at an individual, not segment level, create unique experiences that are tailored to whatever that customer's data is saying they want, um, it's pretty endless what you can do and the amount of data you can process. So we're looking at it more as building the capabilities and the models. Um, collecting the data is, yes, that's an important thing. Um, if you're building your business, you should be getting that, but it sort of serves a different objective for us. Yeah, it's really about how you use the data. Like, so for, you know, Fanatics, we have one of the world's largest databases of sports fans because we go across leagues, we, you know, across teams, and we, we're able to tie, you know, to an individual consumer all their different team preferences, right? Both from a, you know, collegiate perspective, you know, as well as their, their different teams. And you, you really have to get it right because the way uh, the consumers are going, they're, they're going to grab their nearest computer, and that computer is their phone. And so the real estate you have is, um, you know, obviously small. And so every time you um, you want to show them a product, you got to make sure that you're really getting the right product to the, you know, to the right fan at the right time. And so knowing their preferences, knowing because knowing a team preference is just as important of showing what product or what product not to show, right? So um, the worst thing you can do is, um, you know, send a, a Super Bowl championship, uh, you know. Uh, Brady uh, T-shirt to a Rams fan, right? So um, you got to really get that. Have you guys done that before? No. We're very careful. But no, but I mean, that, that's part, you know, so part of our track, process. So you'll track, like, okay, you know, Steve Paliuka, Boston Celtics fan, right, right. and not New York Knicks fan, not Sixers right, fan. You'll right, and sure you have to be very careful about, you know, because what we want to do is we want to identify the subset segments of fans and fans of uh, different players, right? So, you know, for example, you know, when... when uh, um, you know, Kyrie went over, uh, you know, to the Celtics. Like, you know, there are some people that are Kyrie fans, but, you know, and, and you want to get the Celtics fans, they're really excited to get it. But, you know, the other teams that didn't get them, uh, you know, they might be <laughs> upset. You know, same thing for, you know, uh, our Sixers players, right? You know, so when we got Jimmy Butler uh, over and then we were actually, uh, you know, you know, as soon as that trade was announced, we were printing those jerseys because we had banks of, you know, blank Sixers jerseys. And then we got the number, you know, uh, and, and we started printing, you know, printing them. And then we wanted to get that, that messaging and, um, you know, both through notifications um, and through social media to uh, Jimmy Butler fans, to uh, Sixers fans. And, um, and we were selling those jerseys within minutes of, of that being announced. You know, you're going to see Bryce Harper Phillies jerseys. Have you guys um, already started printing those? Um, we're working you print on a it. bunch. Do you get a bunch of teams printed with Bryce Harper just in case he signs no. Dodgers, White no. Sox, and you wait? No, we don't have to. We can do it quick now. Yeah, we, we can do it. So, so the images, we have images prepared. 
right? Uh, but we don't actually uh, hit print on the actual garments until we know. Where do those jerseys go that when the team doesn't win, you know, and it's like, well, LA Rams, well, 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 there's all these rumors, like, do they get sent to Africa? That's the do thing. They we're get we're burned? Not, Where do they go? So in the, in the old days, um, there were jerseys, and, and you sort of negotiate kill prices, and, uh, you know, that a lot of the retailers, because they actually wanted to, you know, have them in brick-and-mortar retail, um, they would actually, um, you know, take the risk on, on those jerseys. But now what we do is after a hot market, we have screen printers strategically, you know, placed throughout the country in, in, in the markets of the winning teams. And then once we know who wins, we start printing. So we don't, you know, maybe we, you know, we took a little bit of a, of a risk when we, um, we partnered with Uber. And so, um, you know, a couple years ago, you know, when, when the Patriots won um, around Boston, um, you could uh, load up your uh, Uber app and then uh, literally within minutes after the game, <coughs> Um, you could order, you know, your 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 Patriots uh, championship. Well, so it's like merch delivery, but it, it was merch. It was from from merch delivery. So we had to pre-print a few of those shirts just for like, right after the game. But after that, it was all on demand. And even with the Capitals after they uh, they won uh, the Stanley Cup, not only did we have Uber cars, but we had Uber bikes. Um, you know, delivering, um, you know, that merchandise. Um, and so fans could actually get their merchandise in 10 minutes. So when you talk about innovation, it's not just about innovation about the product. It's about innovation on how you get that product to the fans. And again, most top market sales happen, you know, within, uh, you, know, you know, days after, you know. Because a week a later, ship. people have moved on. They don't want to buy it. Right. Because they, or they want, they want to wear that, uh, you know, jersey or, or like championship the next day or, or, or to the parade, right? So you got to be able to, 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 to uh, meet that demand. Did you I, guys I think, get... I think the next, the next level of this is, is going to be precisely that, where, you know, as a Celtics, we try to start with the fan and what does the fan want and when do they want it and how do they want it. And the database really helps you because you start to understand one fan, you know, may love Kyrie, another fan likes Jason Tatum, and you can tailor offerings, and the fans like that. And, and, and the more customization, the more engagement they have with the team. You can send them videos of, uh, of a dunk of, of, of Jason Tatum. So the more we can kind of customize the experience of each fan, the more connected they are to the team, the more engaged they are, and you can kind of get them 20, it's become a 24 by 7 kind of business. I was going to say just real quickly, thinking about this printing process, did you guys get burned in that Super Bowl with the Patriots and the Falcons when it was 28 to no. 3? Did you, so you don't just start printing them in the third no. quarter? No, we didn't. We, no, literally it was um, we... Because you uh, can imagine, like, you guys can imagine, right? Like, yeah. you know what, this game's probably over. Let's I start printing. Print you yeah. would have yeah, Jason would have started no, printing. We, no, we, we, we all knew the Patriots were going to win no. that. <laughs> no, we, we, no, we didn't. I mean, we had screen printers, you know, in, you know, in Atlanta. We had screen printers, you know, in, in, in New England. Uh, but um, until we know who won, um, we didn't print. We didn't print it. But they're getting those same T-shirts that they that they wear on the field. So yes, we have to print the shirts, you know, for the players. But that's it, and that's you know, that's the roster of uh, you know, 60 odd some uh, players. Going forward, the next few years as gambling rolls out in the rest of the country, state by state, do we think from the team and league side is what Jason is doing the next big revenue source for leagues and teams? I mean, given that media rights may not go up at the same rate that they've got. A lot of these stadiums have been done. Like, where is the growth opportunities? That one, to me, seems textbook most obvious. It, it's certainly a, a big revenue opportunity for us, but more importantly, we think it's an engagement opportunity. And that's, To get the fans in and, and customize it. Absolutely. I mean, data shows that fans who bet bet or engage in fantasy or watch are engaged three times longer, and that's really exciting for us. And so we think that is going to be the, the big impact of gambling. Yeah, I mean, they, uh, Amy hit it exactly right. You know, what, what you're doing is you're supercharging 
the, you know, the, the full experience. And you, so you're going to create many more opportunities for, for someone to actually think about uh, a merchandise or a ticketing opportunity because they're so much you know, more engaged. So that, that, that fan engagement, those interactions, those give you know, me you know, and Fanatics you know, that many more opportunities to get a, you know, a merchandise, uh, you know, a, a piece of product, a jersey, a hat, a, you know, a tee in front of, in front of the fan. I, I agree that gambling, gambling will be some source of revenue, but I would think the big growth opportunities are globalization, international, um, the, the, it, from traveling the world many, many, times in, many times in one week. You, you see great interest in the NBA specifically in Africa. Is that why the new Africa League was started? Like now when you mention the majority of every team's social media is international, I don't think anyone would know that or expect that yeah, for every single team. I mean, one of the special things about the NBA is anywhere anyone grows up, playing basketball, they aspire to play in the NBA. And that's different in every other sport. And so... Right, in soccer, we know yeah, where the you, best Who knows where is. you want to go? Yeah. And so we know there's a lot more opportunity out there than we're capturing. The, Africa, the Basketball Africa League we just announced is, is one. 35 of our players were either born in Africa or their one of their parents was born in Africa. So we're working with FIBA. We're going to launch this league in January around 12 countries. And so we think it's going to be a, a great opportunity to grow the sport there and to provide a local league there that people growing up playing basketball can aspire to play. That's not only the NBA, but there's a league there. And I assume that helps you guys because it gives you another market to sell jerseys, get people involved, yeah, either no, as it, NBA it, fans it, or it, BAL it, it, fans. It's amazing. We, um, preseason game in, uh, in China, like Shanghai, um, you know, uh, went to that Sixers who were playing uh, the Mavericks. And... Uh, I was blown away uh, by um, the it was an almost insatiable demand, you know, that the, the Chinese consumers had for basketball. So uh, I think the, the stats were, um, f I think, 55 million uh, uh, f uh, Chinese uh, consumers uh, watched um, the preseason Sixers preseason 55 game. 55 million. I think it was 55 million. Yeah, that's like a, crazy. And that was on, 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 on broadcast TV for a preseason game. That's more than what watched the NBA shocking. finals in America. Right. So if you think about that, and that's for a preseason game, and that's, um, you know, in Shanghai. So you can just imagine how, you know, where that's going to go and what that means for the consumer. And by the way, in, in that venue, in, that, uh, in Shanghai, everybody was wearing jerseys. Basketball is the second, yeah. second largest sport now in China. Shouldn't you guys just put all your national TV games in at 7 in the morning rather than 7 p.m.? If you're going to get 55 million people, what, what difference does 3 million on ESPN make? Then? <laughs> Those are the things we talk about, absolutely, but that, that is challenging. I don't think, I don't think the, the Steve's players would like that. It'd be hard to get like people that. there. Just watch it on TV, I guess. But the phones right? have changed everything. When you go to Hong Kong and, and, and you're, you're traveling into work, people are watching the games on their phone because it's... It's 7 a.m., 8 a.m. It's work their morning. Time. It's probably the number one thing watched in China, you know, going into work. They're watching NBA games. They're watching the Celtics and the Lakers right on the phone. How do you guys handle that? Because they can benefit from international, but you've got so many domestic state-by-state, country-by-country rules if you want to spread your business around. Do you guys see them expanding internationally and saying, hey, wait, wait for us. We, we can't get there. The rules aren't, aren't there for us. Uh, no, I mean, first, internationally is way ahead in most places. China isn't one of them, but most places in Europe are far ahead in terms of gaming regulation uh, and sports gambling regulation. Um, also, the reason our business is going to have a huge audience is because there's a huge audience for the NBA. And so you're audience. invested just in their business growing because you just sort of tag along it's with that. It's a beautiful relationship because when they do better, we do better, and as our 
people go from being casual fans and starting to use our products and bet on other games, they start watching other games they wouldn't normally watch, and maybe they pay attention longer if they're playing fantasy, if a game's over already by the scoreboard, if their players are still in it. So it's a really nice, virtuous relationship that really there's no case that they benefit from growth that we don't and vice versa. How does basketball fall? And you, you do more sports than basketball. How, how does basketball stack up versus other sports? For fantasy, the three big sports are by far football, basketball, and baseball. Um, golf has a pretty big audience too, but those are the three that stand out. On the betting side, uh, basketball is huge, but college is also. So college basketball is almost as big as the NBA just because there's so many games to bet on, which is different from fantasy. For fantasy, most people don't know the players. They change every year now. Um, so it's a little bit different than the players who've been in the NBA for a decade or more, and maybe you got to know the new class coming in. Whereas betting, people can just pick the games and bet on the games. It's a more mainstream product, not a game of skill. So. Um, but basketball as a sport is really, uh, outside of football, our most popular sport. I've got questions here on the iPad, so I figure we've got about 10 minutes to go. I'll get started on these. And if anyone in the room has questions, feel free to, what is it, Twitter? And they do the hashtag? That's, oh, it's behind me. Oh, yeah, there we go. Okay, well, we've got a lot here to work with. So as you were just talking about gambling, one of the questions is, will daily fantasy be de-emphasized as gambling spreads? Um, so I think... Whenever you have multiple products, there's going to be some cannibalization. There's going to be some shared voice because you have to market multiple products. So by that nature, it will be. Um, but we're finding in New Jersey, and believe me, we have pumped sports betting about as hard and marketed about as hard as we can in New Jersey. There's still a large chunk of customers that are only playing Daily Fantasy. So um, it's a very important product, and it's one that we need to keep around, and we need to keep investing in, and we need to keep marketing. How close are we still for you? How close are we to being able, this is the question, how far are we from fans being able to gamble directly at the stadium? I assume you can. Well, if, you can now. Yeah, like if in oh. New Jersey there was a pro basketball team, you would be able to do that in the stadium, and then as it rolls around, I assume teams and, and the leagues aren't trying to block that People, in their facilities, People, we have right? data. Tons of betting occurred at the Meadowlands, at, uh, whether the Giants or Jets were playing. Um, got a little less so as the uh, teams weren't doing as well later in the year. No, I'm kidding. Um, but there was a lot of betting. It's actually really interesting. We have really, one of the things that we uh, built over the last few years, partly for regulatory purposes, but partly for uh, business purposes, is really strong geolocation capabilities. So we can tell who's at the stadium. And there's lots of betting going on in the stadium, lots of betting going on the parking lot before the stadium. But let's say Massachusetts legalizes it and it's full mobile and it's go ahead, gamble all you want. I assume the NBA and the Celtics would be fine then with people coming to the stadium well, they can't. and on DraftKings on their phone. I mean, they're not going to stop it unless they shut down internet at the stadium. Yeah, that's, that, I assume yeah, we, that would we're, be. We're, we, we follow the league's direction on that, and I think uh, the league has been out front of this gambling issue. Uh, you know, Europe, Europe has gambling for years, and the key, the key thing for the league is to keep this thing regulated and clean exactly. and make sure the games are, you know, you know played in, in a very fair manner, refereeing in a fair manner, and they, they're all over that. Yeah, it, doing that. It, first and foremost is integrity when it, it comes to, to our approach to, to sports betting. And we do see, you know, what's happened in the EPL and, and other uh, leagues in the world where betting is legal. And so we do want to make sure if our fans are betting that they're in an environment that promotes the fairness and integrity and all of those good things. Another question, two parts. This is for anybody. How do you structure your companies to drive innovation 
And then how do you evaluate those successes and failures? Because I know from working in a big media company, there's a lot of divisions, there's a lot of departments, and you need to get permission from some boss if you want to try something, but it takes away margin, it takes away time. And, and so there's a lot of things that, honestly, that I try to do, my colleagues try to do, we're not allowed to do it, even though it might be innovative. So I wonder at each of your companies that they're all pretty big companies, how do you allow for that and then how do you measure it or decide when we need to pull the plug? It's more cultural than structural. Um, I mean, you can certainly have an innovation group, which helps because it, it makes someone's uh, group's mission to actually innovate, and that helps because then it's what they're thinking about all day long. But you really want it coming from all parts of your company, and that's more cultural than anything. What you just described about people saying no, if your company, the people at the company, feel like risk-taking is not rewarded, everything is a no. Then you just stop, you stop asking. Yeah. yeah, so it's really less about, you know, what, do you, what kind of org structure do you build, and more building a culture where risk-taking is encouraged uh, and people are at all levels of the company uh, are encouraged to innovate. One of the things we stress is best ideas can come from anywhere. We want to empower people and we don't want to get in the way. So uh, we try to make sure that every employee in the company knows they can come up with an idea and pursue it against anything. Yeah, I mean, we have, you know, three different companies. You know, Fanatics is our largest. You know, we have, um, you know, 6,000, you know, sort of office employees. You know, Ruala, we have, you know, uh, six, seven, uh, hundred. And then, you know, at ShopRunner, we have about like a hundred. But, you know, I think, you know, for us, um, it's, it's, it's not just, it's cultural. And part of how you solve the cultural piece is that when you recruit, and, um, you know, when you look at who you want to, you know, recruit, who you want to retain, who you want to develop, you look for, um, you know, that, um, that ability to, to innovate and, you, and, 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 and be creative. And you want to make sure that when you're bringing folks in, they understand that part of being, you know, someone at Fanatics or, uh, you know, at Real or, or that, that they have that sort of DNA um, it, 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 to, you know, to really have that obligation to almost come up with those new ideas and, and have an ownership stake in uh, the growth, uh, you know, of the company. And then you have to have management uh, and, and leaders, you know, in, in different parts of the company that, that are going to, you know, take those ideas and, and, and reward, you know, some of that risk taking, some of that, uh, you know, some of that idea generation. And ultimately, you got to figure out um, how, to, how to put it all together. Do you guys want people jumping over their boss's heads and coming to the CEO and the co-owner and the CIO, do you guys want that? Or is it like, no, no, you deal with your direct boss, but don't start reaching all the way to the top of the company for everyone's ideas? I, I think what we find, both at Bain Capital and at the Celtics, and, and through many business Bain Capital, is the world has become you know, much flatter in terms of structure. And uh, in today's generation, young people can come in and really make a difference. So what we try to do is, is, is we wouldn't promote jumping over some boss's head, but we have an open culture where, where uh, you know, I, I will sit with associates and, and managers and vice presidents at every level of the company and talk about ideas. At Bain Capital, would, should we do a new fund in a new area, a new vertical kind of fund? And then we'll pilot those things. So we don't go out with a big splash, you pilot it with our own capital. And we've probably created seven or eight funds you know, based on piloting things, and some work, some don't work, but if you pilot it, and see it's working and then you can build a larger uh, effort. Same thing at the Celtics, we have very creative people and when they have ideas, whether, whether it's, 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 it's Wick or Rich or Sully or, or Ted Dalton, people listen to those ideas and, and welcome them in. We'll try the same thing, we'll pilot a program with, uh, with uh, augmented reality in the stadium to see how it goes, do the fans like it, do they not like it, and, th and then we'll build from there. So again, it all starts with a culture of having a flat approach, 
listening to all the good ideas, no matter where they come from, and then doing pilots and trying to implement those, and then and then investing in the best ones. Yeah, I'll give you an example. Like you know, at, at Fanatics, you know, you know, five years ago, esports, you know, a lot of people talked about it, but you know, for us, it was hard to imagine. Okay, how do we build a big business around you know licensed merchandise around esports? But there was a team of um, actually within our developers, you know, that were really just excited about um, the esports opportunity, and so they had a kind of a small group uh, that would meet kind of on their own time to really kind of you know. Um, you know, try to imagine what a merchandise business around esports could look like, and so they they stayed um, you know steadfast, and then eventually it got to the point where you know the time was right, and we found an opportunity, and then we partnered with you know Activision Blizzard on Overwatch, uh, but that was largely um, as a result of the the team kind of bubbling up the the opportunity and 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 staying steadfast to say, hey, you guys really need to look at it, even though it may not be a huge opportunity in the near term. We got three and a half minutes to go and about eight questions. So this will be like rapid fire now. So Amy, the NFL has an investment arm, the 32 equity. Has the NBA considered doing something similar? Well, we, we do not have um, that today. And it is something that we always continually think about back to my original point of how do we grow? And it's through partners a lot of the time. Um, we're selective in, in how we invest. We have had some investments where it's something we're continually looking at. But no, nothing like they have. Nothing, nothing too obvious. Okay. Um, the NBA has successfully engaged younger fans via a looser policy around sharing highlights on, on social media. We know some leagues, they're a little bit more stringent with that. Can Steve and Amy expound on what that decision-making process was like? Was it a no-brainer? Or was it hotly contested? Um, we, and this has been, we've had this strategy for a while. We distinctly see our games as, we like to say, meals and highlights and other things as snacks. And they're not something that cannibalizes each other. And so we're very proactive in terms of new platforms, testing new platforms, getting our teams to test new platforms, and distributing those as where the fans are. Okay, Steve, the 76ers recently launched a sports innovation lab. Is that a model that will become the new normal for teams? You know, we'll certainly monitor that and, and look at that. Um, I think at the Celtics we have a great staff. Most people have been there 10, 15 years, and and uh, and and we have them looking at an innovation. So if, if that's a model that actually turbocharges that, we'll certainly take it into consideration. Another one for you. Steal any good idea that's available from the Sixers. Somebody asked, how are you guys measuring the success of augmented reality versus the cost? That's a great question. I, I think again, you start out small, experiment. See if fans really like it. Does it does it add to the game? Does it distract to the game? And and basically, it's a it's a it's a primary research-driven, customer-focused approach. So if the customers like it, you verify that. If it adds value, I, mean, I agree with Amy. What the NBA has done fantastically is, it's not tried to restrict anything, and it just gets engagements for those big meals by serving out the snacks. Augmented reality could be another snack for the game. Uh, what is the NBA currently testing in the G League? A lot. Um, one of the things we're doing that comes to mind, um, we have G League games on Twitch this year, and it's been interesting because we are uh, fans. If you watch a game on Twitch, you can chat live, and on our esports leagues, there's tens of thousands of comments. So fans can vote for the MVP of the game while they're watching the game in one seamless experience, and then that MVP comes out and answers questions from fans right after the game. That's those are the types of interesting things that we see when we think of the future of the viewing experience those type of things, so it's a good ch chance for us to test it. Saj, are you looking at 3D printing any of your merchandise? 
we, we, we've evaluated that, you know, like, you know, in partnership with, uh, with Nike, who we're doing a lot with, um, you know, their, uh, you know, with their shoes, uh, you know, there's some, some really interesting, you know, developments there. Um, so it's something we're looking at, but right now it's not cost effective to 3D print a jersey I as opposed imagine. to a, a, you know, a, a traditional methods. But, you know, for some of the hard goods, you know, um, that there might be some opportunities. I bet they meant having other people be able to 3D print and you send it to them, like the digital version. That's true. Well, the digital jersey, I'm concerned you can't put it in the laundry if it's a computer that I'm wearing. Right. If you stain it, that's right. probably, you're probably right. in So person, you right? send a digital and then you print it. You print it with a 3D <laughs> printer. I'm serious. That's it. Zero seconds. We're all, we're all done. I know Amy has a train to get, so we're going to let her race out of here as fast as possible. I promise you we'd be done on Thank time. You. So thanks, guys, for sticking around the last panel of the day. We appreciate it. Thank you, guys. Thanks to our panelists. If you want to hear these panels in person next year on March 6th and 7th, 2020 in Boston, please register for the 14th annual MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference at sloansportsconference.com. This recording is the property of 42 Analytics and may not be published, broadcast, rewritten, or redistributed without the express written consent of 42 Analytics. Any opinions expressed by panelists are their own and do not represent the beliefs of the conference, 42 Analytics, or the MIT Sloan School of Management. 42 Analytics Educational, Inc. reserves all rights in the content.